You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Aaron Cohen. How you doing? Good, buddy. How are you? Morning. Good. Thanks for coming on. So, yeah, dude. How always many is this? Number, number 40? It's 40 something. I don't know the exact number. We've got to start keeping track probably. But uh, <laughs> so jumping right in, I, I got to imagine you're like, you know, newborn coming out of the womb, armed to the teeth, ready for battle. Like, take me back. Where are you from? I born in Montreal, Canada, whole family's Canadian and uh, moved to the U.S. when I was like two. Grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up in Miami until about the age of nine. Moved to Los Angeles and then uh, graduated from Beverly Hills High School. And then at the age of 18, volunteered, moved to Israel for the purpose of joining the idea for the Israel Defense Forces. Uh, so was a Jew take it back, up. like, what was your upbringing? Like, were you like a tough kid that was fighting all the time? Um, or were, was Judaism a big part? Like, what was it that no, took you there? No, good question. No, I was a tough kid, but I was also... I was a kid who I believe have several uh, several learning disabilities. Got some ADHD. I've got a little bit of dyslexia. Didn't do very well in school. Went and graduated from Beverly Hills High School. Was a tough kid, but I was one of those tough kids who always protected the kids that were getting picked on. I just didn't jive well with the bullying. And so I was a kid who had a lot of different circles of friends. But at the end of the day, I was kind of a loner. I've always sort of marched to the beat of my own drum, never followed crowds, you know, never went to college, never just sort of did everything the way everybody else did it. And, and always sort of had my own strong personality to follow my own interests and beliefs. And yeah, but I was tough though, but, but not a bully, but, you know, super into sports, played baseball growing up, did a lot of martial arts, as you know, and I've always loved the martial arts. I brought it back into, into movies and stuff, this next chapter of my world. And so, um, and then at 18, and I grew up with, um, both my parents were screenwriters. My late stepfather growing up was Abby Mann, who created the TV series Kojak. Literally helped build the studio that uh, that put out that show. It was the first wow. big series, cop series, with Telly Savalas. And then he also won the, uh, he won an Oscar for Judgment at Nuremberg, which was probably one of the top five most important films about the Holocaust, and won the Oscar for it in 1967. So I grew up with neurotic writers, grew up around the industry, grew up around CAA and WME and all the fun calls and the agents and turned off by the whole thing you know it's like yep. you either love it or you're turned off and ended up I actually was sent to military school boarding school because I was a troubled teen you know I ended up getting in a lot of trouble and and not too much trouble but just you know 14 15 in the 90s in LA LA was kind of a dangerous little town yeah and there were little pockets of gangs and crews and you had to kind of click up with one of them to kind of build up your little your little base your little army and you know hip-hop was raging and and ended up uh you know uh, getting into a little bit of trouble, got sent to boarding school at about 15 up in Canada uh -huh. and was the best thing that ever happened to me because all the attention that I needed and all the structure that I didn't have, I got at that military uh, school and was essentially raised by Canadian soldiers for two years. Wow. And uh, I was in the middle of nowhere, about an hour and a half outside of Toronto, but I did my best work and thrived the most once I had that structure and that attention. And so, you know, as a, as a pissy teen or a troubled youth, you know, misguided with not a lot of parental controls, which is very typical of Hollywood kids. You know, we're yeah. like, we're the kids of this, you know, you grew up in LA, we're the kids of the studio heads, the real estate gods, you know, your parents, you know, like, and, you know, and you sort of have to find your own way because when you come from successful parents, you know, they're off doing their thing. It doesn't mean they don't love you. It just means that they've, they're, they're, they're out there 
you know, hustling and crushing and, yeah. you know, it was different times back then. And uh, especially in the entertainment business, it's such a wild animal that, you know, I grew up with the Scott Cons in Little League and, mm-hmm. you know, and again, the, the Crossroads kids and the studio heads kids and the actors kids and the Angelita Jolie's went to Beverly and, you know, yeah. just a, just a mix of troubled youth who ultimately everybody sort of found their way out about half the kids did. And then the other half wound up in rehab. And today they're all, you know, sobriety coaches just because they, <laughs> you know, that's what happens with rich kids yeah. with money who do drugs and can't snap out of it. And, I never fell into that trap. And then by eight, I was pretty disenfranchised with Hollywood. It was like, yeah. not into it. Yeah. And then my stepfather was working on a project about Moshe Diane, the late great Israeli general. Yeah. And his son ended up coming to our home to discuss a project. And I was like 17. He took me under his wing. He goes, you need to move to Israel. He goes, you got too much energy. You've got talent. You're tough. You need to go spend a summer in Israel. And so I did. So I went and I lived huh. in a kibbutz. Immersed myself in Hebrew. I did what's called an ulpan or uh, an intensive Hebrew immersion. It's usually uh, three to six months. And then I fell in love with Israel. And so at 18, I mobilized and volunteered for the Israel Defense Forces. And we can talk about that next if you want to. Yeah, I was going to say, did you? And did you, uh, I forgot what they call it, but like commit Aliyah or did you? Yes. Yes. At 18, I made Aliyah. I I brought everything I owned. When I was a teenager, my senior year in high school, my house was burned down. It was arson in Beverly Hills. My parents were working on a controversial project. I won't name it, but somebody ended up coming up to our house while I was at Beverly, a senior in high school. And the principal brought me to school and said, hey, we're really sorry. I'm like, sorry about what? And told me that my house had just been arsoned or burned down and ended up leaving school, going to the house. The whole thing was charged. Luckily, my dog wasn't killed. Everything I owned was destroyed. Every photo, every piece of clothing, my instruments, all my martial arts. Like that, what was interesting about that is that set me free completely from any interest in in possessions. I just realized that there's nothing that you have that you can't have burned, that you can't re-get. The problem is the pictures and the memories and stuff like that. But that affected me in terms of monetary stuff. Yeah. And at that point, moving forward, I was like, Fuck it. You just, you know, can I swear? Yeah, we can't yeah, hide this on the internet. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and uh, you detach from any personal effects and the need for stuff. And then I moved to Israel with like nothing, with almost no money, lived on this kibbutz, just brought my clothes and then ended up uh, volunteering and drafting into the IDF at 18. And I barely spoke Hebrew, like barely spoke Hebrew. And then at that time, you could volunteer, sorry, you could volunteer for the elite units. There was a selection process. And I had been doing all this research while living in Israel on this kibbutz. And for those of you who don't know what a kibbutz, basically a collective farm settlement. And in 1948, when the country was founded, pockets of movements of Jewish groups who had been immigrating to Israel post the Holocaust ended up building these farm settlements and turning this ratty, muddy piece of desert crap into what today is probably the strongest technology beast in the Middle East and in South Asia. So ended up mobilizing and volunteering for Israel's top unit, which was called Sayed Matkal. It's the unit that Yoni Netanyahu, Bibi's older brother, served in, the famed Entebbe raid. Every general, every prime minister, Ehud Barak, all these guys come from this lineage. It's like the Harvard of the IDF and, and known for the most glorious and daring missions, a special operations, non-conventional intelligence unit, essentially. And finished the tryout and survived this one week, seven day hell week process and then told I didn't have the security clearance to go into the unit. So why did you take me through the seven days of no sleep and no eating? Ended up spraining my ankle, ended up passing out from heat exhaustion. I had to get put on two IV drips just to make it through the last day because I couldn't like stand. I was on my way to a hospital. I said, don't take me. And then uh, got told, uh, you don't have the clearance. You don't have the history living in Israel, but there's somebody else who wants to meet with you. And an officer from a unit called Duv Devon, which is Israel's 
undercover unit, the unit that dresses as Arabs, infiltrates into terrorist neighborhoods to arrest terrorists while plain clothes, brings them back to Israel for trial and interrogation, and was scouting that tryout and then ended up asking me if I wanted to. All I all he said to me, took me to this room I'd slept or eaten for seven days. He said, listen, I'm with a unit. All I can tell you is that we work very cl- closely with the Arab population. And that's, that's all I can tell you. You're interested. And I pressed and probably got nothing. And, and then I went home, slept for like three weeks, healed up at the sprained ankle, came yeah. back, did another two days short trial, which was nothing after that seven day killer. And then ended up mobilizing into the Duve Devon pipeline, which is about, about a year and a half of training. And then uh, served in the unit for three years as an operator or as a commando in the unit. And yeah, that was the IDF and very intense, very, very hard training and, and a very uh, high intensity unit. And obviously relevant with what's going on in the world right now, like what were you, like, what can you share that you were actually doing? Like you said, undercover just as era, but what does that actually mean? So the unit was designed after what was called the first intifada, which was a massive explosion of riots and uh, violence in the West Bank. And what had happened was, this was in about 87, the IDF was sending conventional special forces units in there to go after terrorists that were infiltrating into Israel and blowing themselves up. And what happened was the IDF realized that it wasn't working. And so as soon as you'd have a pocket, very similar to the US and Iraq or Afghanistan, once you'd have uniformed soldiers showing up in military vehicles, because it was terrorism, not a conventional war, the terrorists hiding these, you know, amongst the civilian populations, the conventional special forces units would show up and these mobs and riots, Black Hawk Down style, would show up and start burning tires and throwing Molotov cocktails and the soldiers had no element of surprise, so they couldn't conduct raids to arrest these terrorists because the moment they went into these neighborhoods, they were just getting mobbed and yeah. like lynched. And so the units were ineffective against terrorism. And again, these were special forces units. And so the, the, the high command of the IDF said, we need to go about this differently. So they created two undercover units that specialized in dressing as Arabs, men, women, children, like literally yeah. dressing as Arabs to be able to infiltrate these neighborhoods undetected so that they would be effective in being able to arrest these terrorists and then get them out of the West Bank and in Gaza very quickly and very quietly, but in very small teams. So two guys, three guys, limited weapon. You might have just a pistol and a vest, but you're dressed as, a, as an Arab man walking down the street. And the whole point was the element of surprise. You know, if you're not using deception as a tool, you're completely ineffective against terrorism. And so two units were created. One was Dub Devan, which was my unit, which literally means cherries in Hebrew. And the, the acronym is because you've got the cream of the crop in Israel. The special forces is called the cream and the cherries go on top. So yeah. it's the top unit of the special ops units. It's just a nickname. And then a sister unit was created for Gaza, which is no longer operating in Gaza. We gave Gaza back to the Israelis about seven, eight years ago. And the unit was called Shimshon. And these are two sister units that went through their pipelines together. And they just worked in different places, one in Gaza and one in the West Bank with the same exact skill set. And so that's essentially what the unit did. And so the U.S. ended up borrowing from that model, the British SAA ended up borrowing from that model. And it's really the only effective way to conduct anti-terror raids because you have to use, your face is your weapon. So the moment you're in disguise, nobody knows who you are and you've got time to be able to apprehend those terrorists. The moment you have him, that mask comes off and you're then wearing identification gear so you don't get shot by your teammates. All of it happens, a very dynamic environment. Basically, the best analogy would be, imagine there's a pile of 10,000 red ants and you have to take a knife and dip it into that pile and pull one red ant out. 
That's how tough it is getting that one terrorist. And in order to do that, you have to use the element of deception as your main weapon. So your face is your weapon. What they don't know, they can't think about. So you just have right. to, you're playing a character. You're, it's yep. literally in Hebrew, we say, so you're playing an old man and you're, you're holding this disguise for a half hour, an hour. And then immediately you break distance and you make the grab and get them out of there as quick as possible. And the operations, they've been really successful for the last 30 years. Yeah. And so being a kid from the movie business in Beverly Hills, I know you did a couple of years in military school. Like what drew you to going into the, one of the toughest military situations? Like where, how, where did that come from with you? I started warming up to the whole like concept of doing the military. I thought that would be a good thing for me. You know, and I'm sure if you speak to any of the other SEALs or any of the people that you work with, like yep. there's a certain thing that draws a certain type of personality. So I wanted to do something other than go to college and I wanted to do something physical, but I also believed heavily in national service. And I believed in it at the age of 18. I just understood that you have to connect and link with something that's bigger than you. And even today, even if you're in business or if you're working on a film, it's just not about you. It's about how to connect and add value to the world. And you'll profit off that. You'll make money off that. You'll get promoted off that. You'll go up in rank. But you have to, I just believe that the core value of service and providing service to those who need it was really important. I understood that in my teens. And, and, I, and the IDF was something that I was drawn towards as a Jew growing up outside of Israel because I'd never lived there. And I thought it was important to really go to Israel and see what it was about because you've got Jews who grow up outside of Israel, but there seems to be more and more of a divide between Judaism and, and Zionism. And I think they're intertwined. The whole point of having that Jewish state is because of what happened to us collectively as a people. I understood that at 17, 16 years old, and it never made sense to me when you got people giving money and giving money, which is important. But I believe your time is the most valuable asset. You know, I've heard Cubans say it. I've heard, you know, all the big dogs say, it. you know, time is the one thing that you can't get back. And to give your time is the most valuable form of equity. And at 18, it made sense. And I'm glad there was a place for me to go to kind of see Israel and explore it and ultimately defend it. And yep. um, it was very hard. And it was very challenging. And I certainly left a big piece of myself in Israel. And it's a very tough unit and very tough mentally and emotionally. However, the skills that I picked up for stress management are far above anything you'll get in a seminar. I get cooler under stress. I get cooler under fire. And so this really intense pipeline and training was probably harder than any mission I'd ever been on because they dial it up so high. And, you know, I've trained with you and I've given you yeah. some, we've done some training and, you know, I'm always about like, Hey, I want you to, if you're ever in a scenario, I want you to go, Hey, at least I'm not with Cohen <laughs> in the training room. You know what I mean? So I just understood that service was important at a young age. Israel was the right place for me to go at the time. Yeah. Uh, and that was in the mid 90s. And it was a very intense period in Israel. And I was stepping into a war. And that's really what Israel was going through in the 90s. You know, malls were getting blown up. Cafes were getting blown up. Pizza shops were getting blown up. It was a really dynamic and aggressive and dangerous time there. And my unit was probably the most active unit in the entire Middle East. You know, two, 300 missions a year, you know, just never stopped. And so I just had the wherewithal to, to understand that I wanted to give. I wanted to serve. And that was important to me. Makes sense. And so how long were you there? How long did you... I lived in Israel a total of five years. I was there for a year before getting prepped for the military right. and living on this kibbutz and learning Hebrew. And mm -hmm. it was like, by the time I learned Hebrew, I had to learn Arabic. So I hadn't even figured out how to be an Israeli before I had to figure out how to be an Arab. And that yeah. was always very funny. Guys would make fun of me. They go, you know, like, like I would learn Arab phonetically from English. 
and have yeah. like special <laughs> special cheat sheets made for me to be able to create these characters uh, to work uh, plain clothes and undercover. So it was a total of five years, and and I've been connected to Israel for many many years post my service, which I can't go into, but mm-hmm. I've enjoyed a long relationship and I have since been training government agencies all over the world in counterterrorism and in active shooter response and in mm-hmm. hostage rescue and in plain clothed operations. We can get into that next. Um, yeah. So a uh, total of five years. Yeah. I was going to say, so what did happen next? You, you leave Israel, you came right back to Beverly Hills or what'd you do? Yeah. I, so I left Israel. I came back to Beverly Hills. I had no idea what I wanted to do, man. I hit such a low. I didn't know what to wear. Yeah. You know, veterans are going through this and I didn't know what to wear. I didn't know. I had no identity. You know, I went from a $3 million you know, a 15 million shekel or whatever it costs to train us. We have the highest, in my unit, the highest ammunition budget of the entire idea. If we fire more bullets in my unit of a very small amount of guys than entire infantry brigades over three years, we'll shoot that much in three months. When I came back, I, I was really depressed. I had a really hard time reintegrating back into society. I was drinking, I was running around clubbing, I was getting into fights, I was kicking everybody's ass. It was awesome. You know, so I'd be out drinking and some, you know, jerk off would be leaning against my car in the parking lot and you know, it was lights out, man. It was a it was a dangerous and fun time and it took me well, I would say it took me about 15 years to get my head right afterwards, really? but yeah, I uh, ended up Let's see what I did. Here's the order of uh, of work. I had every fucking weird job in the world that I didn't belong in. <laughs> uh, I started working at a talent agency in the mailroom. That yep. was my first job out because That's... everyone said, you got to go to the mailroom. You yeah. got to learn the industry. You got to learn the business. I thought about being an agent. The idea of it was appealing. And I ended up working at a really big agency that was emerging at the time in the mailroom. The head of the mailroom couldn't believe how quickly I got mail out and like what a machine I was and ended up promoting to a desk, which normally could take like a like a year or six months. And within like two months, I was on a desk. And then afterwards I was like on one of the partners' desks. And and you know, everybody seemed to like me, but you know, getting bagels for agents and tearing the bread out of the bagel and putting string cheese in it and microwaving it and bringing it to them wasn't something I was really cut out to do <laughs> while rolling phone calls, dialing in spreadsheets, sending headshots, calling yep. writers. It was all interesting, but it kind of sucked. It was a shitty job. It was like, you're getting, you know, it's perfect for a kid who's 22 out of college who went to Georgetown, who wants to be a talent manager and has never had his ass handed to him. And I just remember the agent I was working for said something to me really fucking, like really fucking condescending. And I got up and I walked in. It was obviously, like, oh, don't ever speak to me like that again. He like, his face went white. I was dead serious. Like yeah. I'm thinking like out the fucking window, yeah. which I wouldn't do obviously, but uh, he goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I wouldn't do it. And then the next day I didn't come into work and I quit. I just was like, it was about a year at that place. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not cut out for this Ivy league. Like, you know, mm-hmm. kids out of college. It's just was so fucking obnoxious. And I'm not knocking those kids, man. They're some of them I know today and they've started management companies, agencies and projects are super successful and, and good for them. And they, and they eat a lot of shit going through their pipeline. I just had already yeah. been through one and I couldn't redo it again. I was like, I'm not doing another boot camp. I don't care yeah. if it's at this monster agency. And so left there and then ended up work getting hired as a bodyguard at Arnold Schwarzenegger's house for a security wow. company owned by an Israeli and worked for that company for about two years, bouncing from Brad Pitt's basement after he had that stalker in the late 90s, early 2000s. He had a woman by the name of Athena Rolanda who broke into his house, put on his clothes, got in his bed and waited for him to come home. Next thing you know, the guy's got security for life. I was the original team leader 
for that. And as an Israeli special forces trained American, I was like, I was getting highly sought after with all these executive protection firms, not just in LA, but all over the country, DC, because of my level of training. And so the fact that I was American and could speak English and ended up bouncing from uh, Brad Pitt's house to Schwarzenegger's house to, God, uh, Terry Semmel, the head of Yahoo at the time. I was at Bob Daly's house, the head of Warner Brothers, uh, Brad Gray, the late Brad Gray. You know, all these monsters all have, yep. you know, built-in security. And so started to learn the business as a bodyguard and then opened up and incorporated my own security company about two years afterwards. What, what year is it that you're at? Like how many uh, years you're back? Like, it was right after, it was right before 9-11. So 9-11 was 01. Yeah. So I incorporated in 2000. So I had started my, so I was working for that company in 99. So 99 and 2000, I was working for that company. Yeah. And then by early 2001, before 9-11 or late 2000, incorporated my business and got permitted and licensed. It was called IMS Security, uh-huh. which I have sold since. And uh, I'll get to that. And spent the next 15 years I think, well, building probably one of the most recognized security consulting companies, certainly in LA, but ended up, you know, really building this thing out into a pretty sizable company and ended up providing security. My clients uh, included Pink, Katy Perry. I think I've got some of this stuff on my Instagram page and Facebook. I kind of, I kind of throw it out now, little bits and pieces. I'm over it, but, uh, you know, people think it's cool. So I throw it up and ended up, uh, Going over, and then 9 11 hit, and then I ended up getting approached by a police agency. And they said, Hey, do you do training? So that was like probably only about a year and a half after I started my company. And from there, added a I think, yeah, the, the, the important thing here is as an entrepreneur, too, the answer is always, Yeah. <laughs> always say it was. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely the Israeli answer, especially yeah. coming from a unit where you have to figure out solutions. And I'll tie that in. You know, people negative out and they get in their head and they, they're on their own worst enemy and they get in their own way. When you're in yeah. a military and you're in a unit that's responsible for preventing future terror attacks, like we don't go after like low level terrorist fruit. We yeah. would go after the leaders. And yeah. so those leaders, when you get them and extract info, you prevent terror attacks. So there's no we can't get him. Yeah. You'll sit down for weeks trying to build an operation and then you'll go in the back of the base and go build the entire village. Yeah. and practice on it so you're rehearsed and so you know exactly every alley and every street there's yeah. no like i can't yeah. when it comes to protecting you know innocent civilians on tip of the spear counter terror ops so it was always the same thing in business so as soon as i got a call from i can't remember what police agency i think it was some small agency like in, uh, in the midwest somewhere and they go hey we're interested in do you got do you do training and and i said yes and had no idea how to train an american unit wasn't aware of how condensed their training is and how less fleshed out it is than the Israeli training and how little they know about terrorism. And so I came in on that first course and I absolutely destroyed these guys. And they were all like in their forties and fifties, you know, and some of them out of shape and like, you know, and I'm like 24 years old, like, you know, with blood dripping off my teeth, like, you know, ready to give them everything I knew. Yeah. I had to dial down my courses because they were so, so far beyond what's acceptable by peace officers and standards, trainings of, of legal limits of intensity. Like, you know, I've had, I was having wrist sprained and ankle sprain and just like all these injuries and stuff. So I had to dial all that down and these guys just couldn't handle it. And so I finally ended up finding this balance. And so for the next 15 years, I built up a really nice, I think a, a, a proper brand is what I would yeah. say it is. It's the thing I'm the most proud of besides actually helping these people. Celebrities are obnoxious and I'm over it and I'm burnt out on training law enforcement. I've just been doing it for so long. But in addition to be able to help people to, and, and protect people and train people and, you know, law enforcement was a way to get to everybody and keep cities safe. And then protecting celebrities was a way to bring my elite services to the communities that could afford it. And the thing I was the most proud of was building the brand. 
and was always really aggressive about marketing and about public relations and about getting on TV and ended up getting into the CNN uh, pundit cycle and the Fox News cycle, which wasn't as contentious at the time. There wasn't so much of this PC craziness going on and really just built a, a, a an elite security firm that provided counter-terror training as well and did that for 15 years and yep. ended up selling the company about seven years ago. Okay. Uh, why'd, you, why'd you sell? Were you just done? You were kind of over it? Here's what happened. 10 years ago in 2011, at the at when my company started to really cook, uh, I wrote a memoir also, by the way, I don't have a copy of it near me. I was, no. I will get, I will get it and we can hold it up called Brotherhood of Warriors, which is a memoir of my time as the only American in that unit. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from Steven Soderbergh, the Oscar winning director. And he said, I'm working on a movie. I don't like any of the uh, technical advisors in Hollywood. They're all outdated and annoying. And I'm looking for some young blood to come in and work with me on an action thriller. And the film was called Haywired. It starred um, Gina Carano and Michael Fassbender and Channing Tatum and Michael Douglas and Antonio. Antonio Banderas and just this monster all-star cast. And I said yes and ended up putting the company on autopilot and handing it over to my manager. And I spent about the next six months working with the writers, developing the script, trying to get it as realistic as possible, and then ended up training all of the actors for the film who had action sequences and then traveling with them to Ireland and Spain and New Mexico to go. It was like, a, you know, it's like a year of your life practically yeah. doing a big, you know, $80 million action feature. So ended up getting put, uh, ended up becoming part of the brain trust of the film and spent a lot of time with Steven and all the actors. And then, and then he put me in the movie. And when he put me in the movie, I had the same experience that I had being undercover, which is you're playing this character. The only difference was it's not life or death. It was fun. And I was like, wait a second. So you can make, and I was like, I started looking up all the rates and what does SAG pay and how does this work? And I went, wow, what an amazing job. Yeah. I mean, these guys are getting paid 80, you know, I think the minimum is like 80 or 80 or $65,000 for a month's worth of work as a basic contract actor. I wonder what these leads are getting. It's a couple hundred thousand. And depending on who you are as an actor, it could be a couple million. And I kept looking around and I was like, God, these guys are macking it really hard, but they're having fun. Yeah. And ended up like it sparked this seed. And I ended up going, wait a second, man, there's a, there's a lot of good actors here. And there was some Channing Tatum was just budding and Michael Fassbender hadn't broken out yet. He hadn't done Magic Mike. Fassbender hadn't done that Oscar thing with, he hadn't really broken out either. I can't remember the big movie that he did, which uh, he got nominated for, but mm-hmm. kept kind of looking around at all these guys. And I was like, you know what? I can do what they're doing. They're, they're, they're good actors, but I don't feel like there's anybody here who can do this better than me. I may not be better than them, but I don't think there's anyone here who can do this better than me. And I just knew that yeah. and did the film, had an amazing time, still in touch with Soderbergh, still in touch with Channing, still in touch with all these actors, had this masterclass of like some of the top people in the industry and ended up learning about directing and about camera and about acting and about just the whole process with the top people in the business. Came back to LA and I went, you know what? I'm going to try this acting thing. I'm going to do it quietly so I don't screw up my business and people don't yeah. start laughing at me because he's like, oh, he's a fucking actor. And I'm, by the way, the first person to nail on dog actors because I think they're fucking ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like nobody really cares about anything. Like stop. You know what I mean? Like great that you have a platform, but like go, you, you know what I mean? It's just not. So however, they're risk takers and there's something about the creative passion and aggressiveness of talent. There is a genius to breaking through. And that's one thing that people don't really talk about is part of becoming a star is the genius of how to get there. It's not just the performances. There's a business admin surrounding any industry, as you know, and I know. Came back to LA and tucked myself into an acting school for about two years to make sure I knew what I was doing. Right down the street from my house. If it hadn't been down the street, I wouldn't have gone. 
but I would walk down three days a week and I started putting up scenes and learning how to audition and doing plays and Neil Labute. And like, what happened was there was a much bigger thing than I had anticipated. There was a therapeutic aspect to acting Mm -hmm. and the artistic side of being able to exhaust and perform and create was really, really helpful for my post-military therapy. Israel didn't have those things in place like the Americans do with this and that, and you're getting money and you've got therapists. There was no word post-trauma. Post-trauma was like, what? What are you, a pussy? You know what I mean? The whole whole fucking country of Israel's got post-traumatic stress, especially now, 4,000 rockets. So, But I don't want to get political. And by the way, the Palestinians deserve better than Hamas. We can talk about that as well. So ended up tucking myself into an acting school and then over the next like five years, I kept sort of chipping away agent, manager, acting classes, small auditions here and there, and ended up getting myself and ended up being really, really selective and using the same thing that I did to build my company, you know, which was I've got to build a body of work in a reel that's going to excite agents and casting directors and producers. And you can't run off and do short films. You can't run off and do student films. I mean, that's great if you're 20, but at the time I was 35. And I started weaseling my way. Here's what I did. My hustle was training actors like I did for Haywire in exchange for bit parts. Yeah. That was my hook. You know, what is it that you bring to the table in order to get a producer or a production yep. to want to hire you as an actor? And I've always believed that everybody wants to take, take, take. You have to put money in the ATM before you can withdraw it. Yep. That always made sense to me. You know that. You have to spend a certain amount of money to get it back, but it also works with adding value to people's projects. So I was working on trade and have been working on trade for the last 10 years. I don't do as much of it now in exchange for bit roles and bit parts. And I ended up training Keanu Reeves and becoming part of Keanu's core elite cadre of handpicked instructors to train him for the John Wick franchise, which I'm super proud of. And it's a great franchise. He looks amazing, super tight with Keanu. He's an awesome guy. So I ended up doing a portion of his firearms training portion of his martial arts training, the Aikido training, as you know, I've got got black belts and a bunch of different systems and redid all those black belts to get my level back up because I'd done it so long and was working on trade and had the the ability to recognize that you've got to get yourself in as many scenes with as many big movie stars as possible, even if it's only little bit parts so that agents and casting directors will look at you as an actor. That was the biggest challenge and ended up getting into my first real film well, obviously it was Haywire. I had a couple little scenes and that was with Channing Tatum. Yep. And then in 2017 or 18, I ended up doing a couple of movies for a production company called Millennium and did a film with Nick Cage and had a, an incredible scene. And ended yep. up getting my first real acting scene across from Nick Cage, the Oscar winner. And that was like my first real scene. A year after that, I ended up And again, that was exchanging services. I ended up providing tech advising services for this cop film, this gritty cop drama that went to Netflix and ended up getting dumped in the film. And so that's how this kept going and then ended up getting Rambo. And I did Rambo 5, which I don't know if anybody saw, but, you know, just and I ended up having a scene with Sly and just having a couple lines with Sly. I mean, again, more beef on the film. Then I ended up and I said, okay, well, I need something with more meat. And so I went out and dug into my pocket, spent a ton of money on a short film, an action war drama, basically a love story about an ex-girlfriend of mine that absolutely destroyed me several years earlier. And, you know, one day when she asked me, was that movie about me? I'm going to go, no, it was about me, (laughs) but thank you. (laughs) And ended up shooting this short film called Overwatch, which you can catch on YouTube Mm -hmm. and wrote myself the perfect scenes for me. And 
dump that onto the reel. And last year I ended up auditioning and booking my first raw reel role where I'm now recurring on a Netflix series called Luis Miguel, which is streaming on Netflix now worldwide. Ended up booking a recurring role, which was several episodes. I don't know how many total and how they cut it up because it's still coming out every week. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I went, you're doing this right. Like you can figure this out. It's just like any other business. I uh, just got to take all that understanding and just kind of apply it to yourself and admin the business of yourself. And so here we are. I've got yep. this incredible reel built up now and just landed a really proper agent who's nice. getting ready, getting ready to ramp this thing up once COVID comes back down. You know, all the products yep. are shut down right now. There's nothing going on. So yeah, you know, the last year has been, you know, training and self-improvement has been the last year. You know what I mean? And just getting yep. your body right and getting fit. And so um ended up selling my company, Eric, five years ago to make the commitment to act full-time. Now, I will yep. always get security phone calls. Yeah. Can't avoid it. I already served my time on the board after selling the company, so I'm technically not obligated to any of the mm -hmm. those responsibilities. And we usually stick around for about a year or two to help yep. them kind of get everything together. I still get calls to this day. I'll still help people out selectively. I still do a little bit of training for law enforcement. I've been in law enforcement also as a reservist for the last 12 or 13 years. Travel out to my agency on the East Coast three or four times a year. I do that for free just to be a part of that agency because I've worked with them for so long. And now that's it. The bodyguard company is sold and we're we're, we're diving into acting full time. And it's, you know, it's a little scary, but like, fuck it, man. You just like, you got to follow what you really, really want to do. And this is an awesome life. It's an awesome career. I like the challenge yeah. of trying to do something new, but I mm -hmm. also like the challenge of trying to do something that not a lot of people can do. And that's been part of my track record from the IDF to building an elite bodyguard company to actor. Like, why not? If not me, then who? Yeah. And I like being competitive like you. Yep. And I like, let's get the gloves off. You know what I mean? And I love doing a scene with an Oscar winner and going, this motherfucker's not going to outperform me. <laughs> He's not better than me. I don't give a fuck who you are. You know what I mean? Like yep. I have that belief and I love to exercise. And part of my mental, my mental problem is I like the suicide mission of trying to be an actor, yep. but I feel like I can do it. So what's next? What do you think? What's coming down the pipe? What's coming down the pipe is COVID's going to open and we've got really aggressive representation that's young, that really likes my story and believes in the crossover from elite commando to elite bodyguard to actor. And I've got a lot of people sort of pulling for me. And what's coming up the pipe is as many auditions as I can get my hands on yep. while continuing to work on other productions, providing training and fight choreography and just generating as many different streams into those supporting roles as possible for the purposes of building it up to a lead actor. I've got a movie that I'm supposed to co-star in, which shoots in Vancouver, about a group of ex-mercenaries who start a used car dealership, <laughs> and you, which is really funny. Title of the film is called Used Mercs or Mercuries or Mercenaries. Yeah. And so I did a book in this co-lead in this film. I was supposed to shoot last summer supposed to go this summer or in the fall once everything opens back up again in Canada. And so we're, what's next is just doing as many good films as possible and continuing to build up that making a living as an actor is what's on tap. Love it. And so last question for me, for someone trying to pursue their dreams to figure out, to give back to whatever it is, like they have these aspirations. Mm -hmm. What's your one piece of advice that you don't think they're normally told? What's that like not cliche thing that you think people need to hear to really get out of their own way? Or Don't, to don't do listen to anybody. Don't listen to anybody. Yeah. Don't listen to anybody because nobody knows what the fuck they're talking about. Everybody bullshits. <laughs> everybody like unsolicited advice is, is what most people will do. 
They'll yep. throw it at you. And unsolicited advice is basically masked criticism. Yep. Like, yep. you know, if you thought I was correct, you wouldn't, you wouldn't shoot me unsolicited advice. Yep. So one, don't listen to anybody because nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. Try everything because you're not really going to know what's going to work. You have to get your ass kicked constantly. You have to fail yep. to succeed. Yep. Don't give a fuck about the haters. Like they're there to hate. At the end of the day, they'll consume. At the end of the day, you'll flip them. They'll all become fans. Yeah. All comes around. If you've got fucking a hundred followers and you, you know, like it'll all build. Like mm -hmm. I'm trying to get my fucking Instagram account verified. We've talked about this. Like <laughs> I'm dealing with dumb shit. Like it's all good. You just keep sarging, like they say in the in the in the, in the you know, in the Neil Strauss world of gaming, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I read that book because I thought that was awesome. Just the psychology involved yeah. with, with dating and, and that world. And you just keep driving and don't fucking listen to anybody. And you have to fucking fail like a million times. The key is to fail without going broke. Yeah. If you can pay your bills and pay your rent and feed yourself, keep your cell phone on. It's all you need is your fucking cell phone. Yeah. Keep your cell phone on. You're going to eventually figure out. You only have to be right once just keep failing until you figure out the tree. Yep. The trick is just like lower the learning curve. So you take as little damage as possible. Also, you're probably going to have to cut out your family members. They're the first ones who are going to fucking hate on you. They're the <laughs> ones who are going to give you the hardest time, depending on your family environment and your structure. Yep. I'm lucky that my mother is supportive. And she's like, dude, go be an actor. It's fucking great. Like my father supported it also, but I've seen friends yep. who just get crushed by their fucking siblings and their yep. parents. And they're like, no, you can't try shit. You know, it's not safe. You got to be in defensive mode. Go to law school. Go get a degree. It's like, no, you got to pursue what inspires you, but you can't follow your passion without following the money. So you have to choose something that's going to make dollars at the end of the day. You'll find the passion in it if you can figure out the money yep. and vice versa. So also college, school, education. It's like, it's so fucking outdated and dilapidated. There's almost no connection between formal education and hustle today. They don't mm -hmm. teach you any of the skills that you know, Eric, you've like, you've got yep. this, you know, like you're this marketing fucking whiz, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Hawk media, like, bro, you're an animal. You're coming from everywhere. This is not from college. No, nope. you just see what's going on and go, I can do that. Maybe not better than these guys, but there's nobody out here who's fucking better than me. So mm -hmm. you're out there and like, and I'm watching your pod and I'm watching you like, bro, you got killers coming on just cause you've got that fucking thing where you're going, going, going. To anyone listening, just go do it. Stop sitting around. If you have no fucking money, go move in with your parents. Go move in with whatever. Like, just go. Just figure it out. Don't stop. And don't listen to the haters, man, because they stew in their inability to pursue their dreams because they're afraid. Yep. You know, and if someone comes at you, just say, hey, man, when did you give up on your dreams? I'm sorry. You know what I mean? And I'm not that yeah. dick. I'm not that. You know, there's a lot of influencers out there that we've spoken about that I won't name who... Yep. You know, they're dicks, man. They just, they live in that fucking world <laughs> of like, you know, fucking making fun of people and shit like that. Yeah. That's not me, but you really have to march to the beat of your own drum. And the first skill is getting your head right to yeah. learn how to not listen to influences. And yeah. it's really difficult because you may have to cut out people that are very close to you uh, yeah. who are toxic, who are narcissists, who are social, you know, who are sociopaths, who just want to see you fucking being kept down. You got to like break out of that and get them the fuck away from you. And it may be, it may be tough to do that, but if you want to be successful and make your own way in this planet, 
you're going to have to clear out all the shit. Start there. Amen. Well, Aaron, thank you, you so much. You know what I'm talking about. I man. do absolutely I know, know what you're talking about. I know your parents about. are great, but no, still, my, yeah, talking. my family's been supportive. But yeah, no, you, there's always but, people telling you you're, you're crazy, just, you're dumb. Why are you doing that? And listen, by the way, my whole family's been incredibly supportive. But there's even been small comments that because they want my, they have a different best interest. You said it being safe that they're like, don't yes. do that. That's going to, that's such a risk. And I'm like, I want to, they don't understand, but they don't understand what you see. Correct. It's they, and they don't have their yeah. ear into the technical world. Like you do. They oh, don't it's, it's realize just, it's the context. Like there's so much more information I'm gathering than they can gather from a third party that the, the amount of bad advice I've had from really smart people is yeah, insurmountable. Is it because of, they're stupid? It's just no. because they don't understand this new thing. Well, I don't think it's understanding. I think it's actually context. I think there's like those all those subtle things I see every day that mm -hmm. because I'm in it, that even a very intelligent person that does understand what's going on in the world might not see the exact context I have and go, well, I think that's a bad idea. It's like, yeah, but you're missing this piece. But yeah, mm -hmm. I totally agree. Exactly. Well, Aaron, and what's the and what's the problem with them being smart and successful? What's the problem? Yeah, when they're given, when they're coming at you with negativity, yeah, the smarter they are, and the more yeah. successful the smarter they are, and the more successful are, the more the more convicted they are with their point of view as yeah, well. That's true too. You're like, yeah. whoa! Yeah. And you're like, you're like, oh, fuck, is he right? Is he wrong? Is he right? Is he wrong? Like, <laughs> right? Anyways, yeah. man, super appreciate this, dude. Hey, by the way, love all the shit that you're doing. I love Hawk Talk. Thank I you. love seeing killers pop up on your pod. <laughs> I love watching you fucking scrap your way into whatever it is you're trying to build this into. So I think as a media fucking empire and a branding and marketing monster and yeah. i like watching you climb so keep going and let's do this again in a couple movies from now and in a couple of you know what i mean like when you're yeah. on fucking cnn you know running the entertainment <laughs> side or running the fucking marketing side whatever so love all like this, a plan. well thanks aaron this has been awesome awesome bro thanks for having me dude and i i will talk to you soon hawk media is your outsourced cmo and marketing team we'll dive into your business for free identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.